Hey, Eric. Hey, Aaron, you'll never guess what I got in the mail today. Okay, hit it. It's the new issue of The Atlantic. <laughs> hey, you actually have a physical copy. I do, yeah, I'm a subscriber. And as you can see from the table of contents, the article we planned on discussing today gets, uh, gets wow. significant coverage at the first page of the table of contents. That, that is top billing. Um, Inter oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say the story immediately before it is also relevant to something we've talked about in previous years. Uh -huh. I don't know if you can read this. It's uh -huh. the article is called The COVID-19 Manhattan Project. And it says, never have so many researchers trained their minds on a single problem in so brief a time, science will never be the same. We had an episode in which we discussed that also. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm gonna, after the show, I'm gonna read that one. Um, I'm pretty impressed by The Atlantic, even though I didn't know much about them until we decided to do a show on this topic. Well, I wouldn't feel bad. They've only been around for like 200 and almost 70 years. <laughs> now, I think you're, now I think you're making fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about them. Tell me more. Uh, well, I didn't look up, I didn't look them up on Wikipedia or anything, but if I remember correctly, they began as a abolitionist, like a pro-abolition magazine. Yeah. And they have been publishing ever since 1857, which it says right on the right on the cover, established 1857. They've been around a long time. Where's and they the are host? one of America's premier magazines. Um, you know, like whether, whether America's premier magazine is The Atlantic or The New Yorker or something else is a matter of opinion for um, East Coast athletes to debate, but um, it's a good magazine, good magazine. And I since I get an debates. educator discount, I am very pleased to be a subscriber. <laughs> well, rather than doing, oh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, by the way. Same to you. We're recording this on the 23rd, right, right at Joseph the end Smith's of the evening. Joseph Smith's birthday, no less. Yeah, that's great. 215th, if I remember right. Or 230th? Uh, yeah, that would be right. 215th. Yeah, yeah 1805. Um, we decided instead of doing a David O. McKay thing, we'd do a McKay Coppins thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's really relevant because um, the title of our book, of course, is David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. And this article in The Atlantic by McKay Coppins is largely about like, okay, well, what's the next step for modern Mormonism? Where, where are we going next? Um, and so about halfway through our David O. McKay season, it seems like actually a pretty good question for us to consider anyway, even if McKay Coppins didn't just throw the question into the zeitgeist. Right, which means time ghost. Means time ghost? Yeah, zeitgeist. Oh, oh, does it really? <laughs> I oh, learned that recently. That's so fun. <laughs> I love that. The name of the article is The Most American Religion by McKay Coppins. Uh, came out on December 16th, 2020. And I wouldn't say that it's gone viral, but among Mormons, it's like picked up some steam and it yeah. is in the Atlantic and it's being seen nationwide, right? Right. I, I, uh, when it, when it arrived, I told my wife that this is what we were talking about. She's like, oh yeah, I've seen that several times. And my wife does not spend a lot of time on social media. So the fact that she's seen it several times suggests it's certainly making the rounds among our fellow Latter-day Saints. So it's excellent. And, um, it asks a lot of questions that I hadn't even really considered, right, of Mormonism in its current day. So I thought that would be worth talking about. Is there someplace you want to start? Uh, no, I don't have a particular entry point in mind. If you have one, let's do yours. Um, I just wanted to just give an outline of the article. I recommend that you go, dear listener, and either read it or listen to it 
in audio form. If you go to the webpage we link to in the show notes, you can see the article and you can hit a play button there to listen to it. That's what I did. Does Brother yeah. Coppins read it himself or does the Atlantic hire professional voice actors? It definitely sounds very professional to me. I don't know if it was <laughs> <laughs> who, who it was, but it was very good. <laughs> um, it, it starts with some, the, the main question, okay, is how come our religion, right? There's two questions. How has our religion stayed so American when America has seemed so determined to reject us or ignore us, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's a heavy question. And <laughs> is this the, and, how, and what does that mean for the future? Because we really are an American religion, right? We are. Um, I have not spent a lot of time abroad, just my mission. And, but from what I've heard from many corners of the Mormon world is that to be Mormon is to be tinged with an American taint. Uh, and that's a negative sounding word, but I don't necessarily mean it as negative, but like to be Mormon is to be um, tainted with Americanism, no matter mm -hmm. where you are in the world. Mm -hmm. Let's read some quotes from the article. Okay. Okay. So, um, McKay got the chance to interview the prophet, which kind of is the kickoff point of this article, right? Yeah. And um, who introduces the church. Uh, McKay gives a great deal of some of the history about the church in a nice way that non-members can um, kind of be brought up to speed, right? Yeah. Um, let's start here. In the past few years, Mormons have become a subject of fascination for their surprising resistance to Trumpism. Unlike most of the religious right, they were decidedly unenthusiastic about Donald Trump. From 2008 to 2016, the Republican vote share declined among Latter-day Saints more than any other religious group in the country. And though Trump won back some of these defectors in 2020, he continued to unperform. Joe Biden did better in Utah than any Democrat since 1964, and Mormon women likely played a role in turning Arizona blue. Okay. Scholars have offered a variety of theories as to explain this phenomenon, that Mormon monody communities are models of connectedness of trust, that the church's unusual structure promotes consensus building over culture war, that the face early persecution has made its adherents less receptive to nativist appeals. Nelson attributes these qualities to the power of the church's teachings. I don't think you can separate the good things we do from the doctrine, he tells me. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. All right, here's the point I wanted to get to. As a lifelong member of the faith, I can't help but see a more complicated story. Mormons didn't become avatars of a Norman Rockwellian ideal by accident. We taught ourselves to play the part over a centuries long audition for full acceptance into American life. That we finally succeeded just as the country was on the brink of an identity crisis is one of the core ironies of modern Mormonism. Yeah, this is the story we're hearing played out as we go through David O. McKay's ministry is we're seeing uh, Latter-day Saints become prototypical Americans in real time as we read that book. And, and he goes on to talk about in 2012 when Mitt Romney was um, running for president. And that was around the time we've talked in the past about books like 
um, that cover how Mormons were described as a separate race and so forth. Uh, and that's when a lot of that stuff peaked, like just as Mitt Romney was too white to be president, um, you know, Mormons had finally succeeded in being as white as possible. And then all of a sudden that's not the right thing to be anymore. I feel like this sounds like a high school movie. <laughs> Try so hard to be popular and then the prom rolls around and you realize that it doesn't even, it wasn't even the right thing to be. Let's break the thesis statement down into two, two components, right? The first is that, <clears throat> the first is this, this craving, he uses the word craving later, of acceptance in American culture of Mormonisms, right? And I thought that that usage of the word was, was really poignant because I feel the echoes of that craving in my own life as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but also in uh, living in a community that is very notch, not Mormon, right? Yeah. I went to a, a dinner, right? With a bunch of coworkers from outside the country and it was great and we're having a good time and somehow Mormonism came up, right? And and they were talking about it for some reason. And I mentioned, oh yeah, I'm a Mormon. And the table just went quiet. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Right? <laughs> the conversation evaporated and you could have heard a pin drop. And it was as if I had grown an extra head on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> right? And one of the yeah. guys said, I did not expect that. <laughs> 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 and so, not... And I really didn't feel very accepted <laughs> at that moment. Um, and um, it's a lot better than it used to be. I mean, McKay starts with the earlier parts of the church where we were essentially just killed a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's a relatively brief period compared to how long other groups of people have been killed, but you don't readily forget something like that just because it only lasted a couple decades. I had a similar experience um, to yours. I was department chair. And so the department was going to be my room. And one of my colleagues arrived before everyone else. And I don't remember how it came up. Um, but it did come up that I was a Latter-day Saint. And it stunned him because he had no idea that he had ever met a Mormon in his entire life. All he knew about Latter-day Saints comes from John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven, which is about polygamous um, and fundamentalist and, and murder and intrigue in the FBI, um, which is a book he had taught in San Francisco at his previous employment. And um, it, I mean, it was fine because we were, we already had a good relationship. And I, I think he will, like his set of assumptions has changed, but it definitely took a while for him to reprogram all his understandings. Um, and that gets to one of the points that McKay makes in the article is that, uh, or he doesn't make it himself, he quotes a number of experts who make this point that Mormons are one of the groups that it's totally still okay to dislike, whether you're on the right or the left. Um, no matter who you are, we are an okay group to think less of. Um, and that comes down to, you know, this whole, this whole craving, like, um, when you, when you feel keenly being left out, you just want to belong. 
And I think that's part of the reason this article has been so popular is like the exact same points could have been made by a non-Latter-day Saint writer who made a lot of, who did solid research, but having it told from a Latter-day Saint's point of view made it resonate in a way I don't think it could have otherwise. It's so funny. It, this article hit me in the, in the center of my being, right? In a way that I didn't expect because of exactly what, you're, what, you've, what you've described, right? This longing. Let's read what he says, right? So he's talking about how when he was a kid, right? He tried to cultivate a reputation that sanded off the edges of my orthodoxy, he says, right? He's Mormon, but he's cool. He says, I didn't drink, but I was happy to be the designated driver. I didn't smoke pot, but I would never narc. All this posturing could be undignified, but I took pride in my ability to walk a certain line. Unlike my co-religionists in Utah, where kids went to seminary in the middle of the day at church-owned buildings next to the high schools, I was one of only a few Mormon kids in my town. If my classmates liked me, I reasoned, it was a win for Mormons everywhere. In the pantheon of minority religion neuroses, this was not wholly original stuff, but I wouldn't realize until later just how deeply rooted the Mormon craving for accept for approval was. Where does this craving come from, Eric? So yes, we kind of have a religious PTSD from persecution from polygamy, right? And right? What are the symptoms of PTSD? You've experienced some kind of trauma, right? And you just are just trying to avoid any situation, right? That would mm -hmm. reproduce that trauma, right? And you, like as a religion, I think this really is applicable, right? We got so persecuted and I don't want to say that we didn't deserve maybe some of the <laughs> well no matter what you deserve you never deserve to be murdered right i guess that's the better way to say you never it. deserve to be raped and pillaged no matter how annoying you are yes we we maybe could have there could have been some better community building <laughs> but yeah, yeah the response was there i mean the response was an extermination order right yeah but for some reason we we craved to be American, right? Our church was founded on um, this book about the Americas. Um, Joseph Smith taught that the American, um, you know, the constitution was divinely inspired, right? And when we came, and Brigham Young said that eventually America, we would be welcomed back in or that they would come to us, you know, for help. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> Why did we want to be American so badly? It's a good question. I mean, the Americas is a lot bigger than America. Yeah. Why couldn't we be happy, like, if the Canadians liked us or Mexico or Brazil, right? Like, why here? Um, a couple episodes ago when we did the politics, uh, the politics episode, um, I don't know if you remember this, but we ended listing all the nice things presidents of the United States had said about President McKay. Yeah. Because as Mormons, we like to hear that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this whole need to be outsiders, but liked outsiders is really deep. Right now, my in-laws are in the process of moving to Utah and they've tried to talk us into joining them. 
but we feel very strongly against raising Mormon kids in Utah. It feels like the wrong place. It, like if you want to raise good outsiders, you can't raise them, raise them where they're insiders. It doesn't mm -hmm. work. It just, it just feels deeply wrong to me to raise Mormon kids in Utah, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much of our listenership is Mormons in, in the Mormon belt, but um, it just doesn't feel like the right way to do it. And part of that is based on my personal experience, uh, having lived as a child in both areas. But uh, I think part of it is what he's talking about here. This, um, this, where, where, when he talks about like, unlike my co-religious in Utah, where kids went to seminary in the middle of the day, right? Um, I was one of the few Mormon kids in my town. If they like me, it was good for Mormons. Um, that is a huge part of my identity: is to be the light on the hill to be the salt to yeah. be in the world but not of it the, this is this is core to my identity as a latter-day saint you can't make me part of the majority and have me still feel like a latter-day saint in quite the same way i'm in the ward mission so what that means is that my calling in the church is to figure out ways to help missionary work right now, I got that calling after I, you know, we started this podcast, so it's not related. <laughs> and one of the things that we've been discussing is social media, right? Mm -hmm. And how to be LDS online, right? And it's been over the last three years, I've been linking my own personal Twitter account, you know, at Aaron Brewster, if you want to follow. <laughs> to my Mormonism, right? But I have professionals that follow me on Twitter and people that I work with through, you know, the my laboratory. And, you know, whenever I like a post, they see it. And it makes me nervous because I don't know if I'm going to be accepted, right? I don't want to be in this situation of non-acceptance. And um, I don't know, I don't really know and it's a bit paralyzing, to be honest. Um, this this f desire to be accepted by the people that are around you, you know, it's pretty human, but it really gets you. <laughs> yeah, and it should, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, what we're talking about is you not, not unique to us, right? Like, um, there's that old New Yorker cartoon from the nineties, like on the internet, no one's your, no one knows you're a dog. Mm -hmm. And, and before the modern social media era, like if you had an online identity, it was thoroughly anonymous. It was unusual to identify yourself. Um, but now people's identities are, I mean, you can still be anonymous online. It's not that hard, but um, your identity is more likely to be attached to your online identity. And so you can't pretend not to be say, a racial minority or a religious minority quite as easily. Um, and, it, and what if, or like, um, like being gay, for instance, online, right? Like, are you going to be out? It's a hard thing in real life. It's a hard thing online. Some, you know, making that transition from in the closet to out of the closet. But what if you're like, then, then you get to be like, what if you're a gay Latter-day Saint? Then you're, you're like a minority within a minority within, you know, you're like Russian nested dolls of minorities and trying to figure out how to how all these different levels of your online society will judge you and treat you. And I think it's really important online 
to err on the side of side of kindness at all times because we're all negotiating identity in some way and and navigating and like enforcing borders is not necessarily the right thing to do like christianity is going to come in really handy here just love your neighbor eric i agree with you 100 percent, but i have to confess that <laughs> i'm a little tired of it <laughs> <laughs> of of what of of being afraid of not fitting in right it gets old um let's read uh, let's talk about the mormon musical oh the book of mormon um, the book of mormon musical from the south park bros yeah you yeah. mentioned this um quote about cat about um we'll come to we'll, we'll get, this is where it comes in um we have before in the past talked about the south park um episode of mormonism and i think highly recommended it both of us no um, i i didn't you didn't i have not seen it i've seen bits of it like i just don't find them funny so okay, well, i have highly recommended it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think it's really funny it's the only south park episode i like i've and i've not seen more than 10 and um it it was you know, it was sardonic and it made fun of us, but it didn't do it like the Book of Mormon musical did. Mm -hmm. Let's quote McKay again. Co-written by South Park's creators, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the show skewered Mormonism with gleeful profanity and depicted its adherents as simpletons. My initial reaction, again, this is McKay, after listening to the soundtrack was exasperation that this was how affluent theater goers were going to be, were being introduced to my faith. But I also felt compelled to be a good sport. And then he talks about how, you know, the entire church tried to be a good sport about it. To the point, and, and the creators knew this was going to happen, right? Yeah. One of them says, trust us, they're going to be cool, referring to the Mormon. Yeah, they'd said right? that before about the South Park episodes. They grew up with Mormon kids, and they knew that we're nice. Right? Okay. So, I remember being delighted by the church's response. Such savvy PR, such a good-natured gesture. See, everyone, we can take a joke. But then I met a theater critic in New York who had recently seen the musical. He marveled at how the show got away with being so ruthless towards a minority religion without any meaningful backlash. I tried to cast this as a testament to Mormon niceness. And just pause for a minute. I'm going to express some frustration here very quickly, <laughs> but I want to, I want it to be clear that I, I am a good sport as well. <laughs> <laughs> the critic was unconvinced. He says, no, he replied, it's because your people have absolutely no cultural cash cachet. Okay. And then yeah. I, then I Googled what cachet meant. <laughs> um, all right. It means uh, the state of being respected or admired. I think it's cachet. Yeah, cachet. Cachet is right. Yeah. And I think the critic is absolutely right. Like we have to be a good sport because if we don't have the power to fight back, like it should be possible to be a good sport and also say y'all being jackasses at the same time. Like right? we should be able to do both those things at the same time, be a good sport and also call them out on it. Yeah. Um, but because we lack cachet, we have to pick one or the other. 
And if we and if we say you're not being nice, then we come off as whiny because nobody cares what we think. Listen, I'm going to be whiny. I'm really tired of the Book of Mormon musical, right? Uh (laughs) I'm really tired of having to feel like my Mormonism, like I can't be proud of it and not just be Mormon online, right? Yeah. You know, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I love it, right? I love its history. I love its principles. I love its doctrine. I love its people, right? But for some reason, I don't feel like I can be brash and brazen about it online. I recognize the irony of recording this and putting it into a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Well, I I can't remember if we've talked about this on the show before or not, but you and I have talked about this. Um, my, My first foray into being, having an identity online in a significant way was through blogging. Back in the era when, when bloggers tended to be anonymous and have these really um, curated phony identities. And um, there really was, even though almost everyone in my blogging circles was Latter-day Saint, there was almost no Mormon content in anything any of us were doing. Um, And in 2006, January 2006, is when um, I first got internet into my living space. And at that point, I decided that since I now had internet all the time and was probably going to spend a lot of time online, um, I was going to go ahead and start introducing my religion to my blogging. And I created a theme, which I call the Svaith, which is a portmanteau of seven and tithe. The idea being that one day of the week, I would blog religion. And I started on Sundays doing um, religiously themed posts. Not necessarily, um, not what you would necessarily call devotional, uh, not sacrament meeting ready necessarily, but um, thoughts of a more spiritual or religious or theological nature. Um, Some serious, some not, but I just started doing that. And once I opened the door to that, it became, in other words, once I, once I cracked the door to being a Mormon online, it became a lot easier. And um, anybody who follows me online now will not have to wait long to find out that I'm a Latter-day Saint because it's a big part of my online identity. And I don't know, right? Like the question you were asking later, like, is it, uh, is this going to damage your reputation in other say professional circles? Like, that's a question for me too, right? If, um, is this something that could get in the way of me, uh, of a particular opportunity of some sort? Uh, I don't know. There's, and I'll probably never know. Well, here's, what's really interesting. I actually think that, you know, one of the mottos of our show that the world is becoming a better place (laughs) and that, um, people are becoming more acceptance and accepting and tolerant of difference, tolerant of differences, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, that I am going, I think that, I think that I can be, I think I'm moving towards a place where I can just be totally, I can totally forget this this fear, as it were. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it properly. Um, nervousness maybe is the better, you know, trepidation, like mm-hmm. timidness about being LDS online. Um, 
instead of tiptoeing around like a field mouse, I can just, you know, stalk. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's because society is more tolerant or do you think it's just because you're a little bit older and secure? Well, it might be both. You know, there's a real thing that's true with humans where everything old is new again, right? Right. <laughs> People just think that they've discovered something amazing. <laughs> and it's just because they heard about it. <laughs> that was my first thought when I read that cultural cachet line. I was like, ugh, we, it's so true because in the, in the arts, in the Mormon arts, we're always like, every time a group of artists and writers turns 25, they decide there should be good Mormon art. Mm -hmm. And we're really bad at maintaining our heritage. And so every group of newly 25-year-old writers and artists think they have to create it from whole cloth and they don't know that we have a tradition because we're so bad at maintaining our artistic traditions. And um, I think this, this is... ties into some of these questions. Like we yeah. can't have cultural cachet until we take ourselves seriously. No one else is going to take us seriously unless we take ourselves seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, your, uh, your lecture on Joseph Smith's art was very cool. And... Um... I know it got some traction, so I was very happy about that. Um, I think that this goes back to the original statement, right? Is that this craving to be Americanized, right? So that we can become accepted by the, by the country, by the government, right? To escape persecution, to become like this big nuclear family loving religion. So that's kind of maybe suppressed some of this art this culture from being something you would see in sacrament meeting right and something you would see in in elders forum and relief society in your young men's young women's course right mm -hmm. art and song that is new and interesting and not and not mainstream you know what i'm saying yeah so maybe things think yes everything old is new again but I don't know. I think maybe things are being different. I mean, social media is a big deal, right? It changes the game. As opposed to in the past from 20 years ago, you know, the art and history being available only through books that, you know, may not even be available in your local church meeting house, right? To yeah. now you can just find things online. It makes a big difference. Yeah. This is a bit meta. Um, so forgive me if you don't want to go down this road, but um, social media is an interesting phenomenon, right? Because we can all share with each other equally. Um, in theory, it is as easy to see something I tweet as something President Nelson tweets, right? In theory. Um, maybe not in how it actually plays out, but in theory, that, that's true. We all have equal access to the space. Um, and, but, but that can create a lot of noise too. Um, there's can be so many voices, uh, that it, I, you know, traditionally a lot of like primary is a classic example, right? A lot of good ideas in the church started in the lower levels and trickled to the higher levels. And, um, that certainly still happens. Um, revelation definitely flows both directions in the church, but brother Coppins has a unique opportunity, I think. And this is one reason I think the article is important important beyond what it says. I think the way it says things is very important because I think that McKay Coppins is in many ways uh, living an experience similar to you or I or other members of the church of our generation, give or take 20 years. And, but he is being published in the Atlantic. 
he therefore gets to interview the prophet and an apostle. Um, and he will be read by a large number of people, both inside and outside of the church. And therefore the way he phrases things and the way he describes things uh, can have a bigger impact on the way thing, people think about it. And I mean, both people like you and I, but also people at the top, like um, he has a way to share, for instance, uh, the experiences of Black Latter-day Saints and why they feel uh, the church still needs to make amends for the race policies in a way that um, could potentially be really threatening to church leadership or very um, potentially like say it in a way that allows them to hear it in a new way, right? Like he has a lot of, he's in a very unique position as a lay member of the church to say things and know that Salt Lake will hear what he has to say and to know that outsiders will hear what he has to say and know that insiders will hear what he has to say. And um, that seems, the tweet uh, he sent out shortly before it went live where he said, tomorrow I'm releasing, like there's a story coming out that I've been working on for a year and I'm really nervous about it. And, and for those who have not read the article and are listening along and think we may have covered all of it, no, it's 9,000 words long. It could be published as a very short book. Like it's, it's significant. And um, it's excellent. And, and so, and this is what I mean by meta. Like it's not just the fact that the article, ex uh, what the article says, it's the very fact that it exists and who said it and how he said it and how that's going to um, play in all the different audiences who might read it. It's interesting. In 50 years, this might be a really important article or it may have no significance at all. There's no way to know, but he, it, he has a little bit more ability to say something that a lot of people can hear than the average lay member does. So he says that we're at a, let's, let's wrap up here with, a, with um, a return to the beginning of it. He says we're at this crisis point, right? We have been rejected in the past. We struggled to become accepted. And just as we really are becoming more accepted in, 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 uh, you know, in America and in the rest of the world, um, there's this identity crisis that's happening, right? Yeah, in America specifically. Mm -hmm. So what does this and, mean for Mormonism? Well, let's, let's explain a little bit more what he means by identity crisis. Um, but to, to oversimplify it, let's just say the identity of America up until recent times was it's good to be white, rich, and in power. And now we're not 100% sure that that is really the right, um, that's right, right? Like, like, why should those things be more important than any other attributes we as Americans might have? And we've worked really hard to fit into those categories. And now um, America's not sure that those things deserve the um, the pedestaling that has been that they've or the pedestal that they've been put on. Here's where I want to where I want to take our Mormon identity, right? Let's hear I, it. I want to take it in a direction that really celebrates the things that make us special and unique, right? I want to celebrate more the first vision. I want to celebrate more um, the um, the king, the King Follett discourse, right? I want to celebrate more Heavenly Mother and, um, you know, all the topics that we've kind of based our first, our first bunch of shows on, right? I want to celebrate the seer stones and the face in the hat, right? I want to um, talk more about women in history of the church and, um, 
have this real culture, this history, right, be part of our identity. And so our identity isn't just Nephi and the Urim and Thummim, a partition sheet between Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, but includes all of the other interesting and kind of weird stuff that really happened and that makes and that makes our church so interesting, right? And um, that that's that was my as it thought as I was trying to figure out where to go. That sounds good to me, and I'd like to add to that. Um, there was a complaint that uh, Boyd Matheson made in the Desert News about Coppin's article about how it um, didn't. It's not an American religion; it's a global faith, right? And then, and then um, we'll throw in the show notes whether we talk about them or not. But Benjamin Park released a little Twitter thread about um, how we're not really global; we're merely international, which is interesting. But that's what I'd like to add to what you said. I agree; I endorse entirely what you said. But I also think that part of endor endorsing um, what's weird about Mormonism also means um, incorporating what is interesting about every culture on Earth. Um, we shouldn't be quite so American as we are. We really should be a lot more global than we actually are. And I, I do think we have that goal. Um, I think we're nervous about it though, because it's a little, it's a little dangerous. It's stepping into the fog a little bit. And as American Mormons, we, I think, are maybe a little too comfortable in where we are. And we should embrace even a little bit more weirdness to incorporate the rest of the world and all our fellow Latter-day Saints all over the place and everything they have to bring to us. Okay, so here's our request for our listeners. Um, in the Twitter thread that we always post, so at Face and Hat on Twitter, it's really the best place to get in contact with us. Send us non-American Mormon-based podcasts. Oh. If you know of any. That'd be great. And um, Even if they're know. not in English, because just because we don't understand them doesn't mean we're not interested in sharing them with others. <laughs> 